I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, we're looking at the first 10 verses of this chapter this morning. And as we've seen throughout the book, Revelation really contains many contrasting themes. We're going from darkness to scenes of bright light. Uh, Torments of persecution on earth are followed by the glories that the saints enjoy in heaven. Well, in this case, we jump from the theme of the world lamenting at Babylon's funeral, representing the the end of immorality and the the world system at Christ's return. Now we jump to the saints rejoicing at the wedding celebration of the Lamb. So the death of Babylon left the inhabitants of the earth who identified with her corruption in deep mourning. And so we looked at the, that lamentation last week. Her, her judgment was swift and it was shocking right? for those who had been enamored by her beauty and wealth, those who'd been seduced by her. Their whole world is flipped upside down so that all they could do was weep of her passing. And in fact, they feared the, the judgment that would follow as they stood far off so that they themselves would not be touched by the flames. But in spite of losing everything that Babylon represented and all the, the idolatry that she represented in their lives, despite losing all of that, they still refuse to repent. And so the second coming of Christ causes unbelievers to lament and believers to rejoice. This passage reflects on the passionate praise of a great multitude It's their heartfelt response to the end of wickedness. Believers rejoice at the sight of Babylon's judgment, knowing that it will usher them into the eternal wedding feast of the Lamb. And so I'd summarize it this way, and it's in your outline there. Not until immorality has been finally eradicated can the marriage of the Lamb be fully celebrated. I think that's our our reflection. That's the summary of this passage this morning. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, revealing yourself to us in a way that we can comprehend and understand and apply to our lives. Lord, we pray that you would speak to each one of us, Lord, where we are. Give us conviction of our sin. Give us exhortation to follow in obedience. Lord, bring us the comfort of the gospel. Remind us of who Christ is and what he has done for us, that we might be freshly moved in our worship of you. Lord, that you would be glorified and that we would be edified. So we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this truth and soften our hearts to respond in obedience. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me. Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Amen. This is God's holy word. Five, praising the judgment of Christ's enemy. It says the inhabitants of the earth are mourning the death of Babylon, the death of their immorality, the source of their uh, corruption. The saints begin to praise God for the judgment of his enemy. So following John's vision of the death of Babylon and the lamentation that immediately followed, John hears this loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Their praise opens with the word hallelujah. It's a combination of two words. It's hallel, which means praise, and Yahweh, uh, which is the name of God, right? So it's praising to, the, or it's praise the Lord. Uh, the word occurs 24 times in the Psalms and four times in Revelation 19. And that's, that's it. You've heard the word many times, but, but it's actually only used 24 times in the Psalms and four times in this particular chapter, and that covers all of its use in Scripture. It's believed that Jesus and his apostles, uh, in sync with Hebrew tradition during the Passover, would have sung the Hallel Psalms, which make up Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. So during the Last Supper, they would have probably had a time where they were singing through those psalms together um, as part of their tradition. And so its placement, even though it's used that many times, which is, which is fairly frequently, but, it's, but it may be not as frequent as you would think, um, its placement at the end of the Psalter, it's, it's contained in chapter, uh, Psalm 150, verse 6, it's also contained at the climax of Christ's ministry, as I said, if they were singing along with the rest of um, Israel, uh, the Hallel Psalms. And then it, we also see it here in the last song of the New Testament. So it reveals this important theme, hallelujah, is the culmination of the fulfillment of God's promises. Right? In response to seeing God fulfill his good purposes for redemption, we give him praise. Right? We give him, we, we lift our hearts in praise. So this is followed by adoration for God's salvation and glory and power. Uh, these attributes of God are in direct relation to the truth and justice of his judgments, as we, re as we read about in verse 2. 
So by judging the great prostitute, God has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Uh, it's God's answer to the prayers of the martyrs back in chapter 6. Remember, the, the martyrs were under the throne, giving their, they were praying, crying out to God to avenge our blood. Here is that answer. Christ's return is the final answer to their pleas. And so the great multitude rejoices that the smoke of Babylon ascends to heaven forever. Um, They're rejoicing because it represents the end of her seductive influence in the world and in their own lives. Individuals seduced by Babylon and the beast experience the same fate as Babylon. So there's a corporate and an individual aspect to the judgment that is taking place. And the saints are worshiping because this paves the way for them to enter into unhindered praise of their Lord and Savior. And so the 24 elders in verse 4, they gather together with the four living creatures and they also are in agreement with the praise of the great multitude. The praise of the church triumphant, as we call them. Like those saints who have, who have gone from the church militant on earth where we struggle and we go through trials and, and severe testing and, and then we, we get to heaven and, and we join the church triumphant and we sing our praise. Well, the, the 24 elders and the four living creatures that are around the throne of God, they join in agreement with the church triumphant. And then a voice from the throne in verse 5 exhorts everyone in heaven from the smallest to the greatest to give their unhindered praise to God. Okay, God remains at the center of the scene. And so it's before the throne of God that the church triumphant declares this praise. It's, it's, it's with God in the center of it all that the entire heavenly host lifts their voices in praise. Well, one of the things we see in the Old Testament is this constant problem that the church had with remaining faithful. Right? Even though God initiated a covenant with her involving rescuing her from being abandoned uh, and then providing for her, so that he even adorns her with beauty and splendor, as we read in Ezekiel 16. She took the blessings of God, and then she offered them to false gods. And this occurred repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. Hosea gives the same kind of picture of an unfaithful covenant people. A people who used God's good gifts to try to gain favor with other lovers, right? The temptations of the world are too strong for his bride. And so she became a prostitute. She whores herself, in fact. The language is, is, is not subtle. <laughs> we saw it throughout Ezekiel. You see it again in Hosea. You see it in, in other prophets. The language is not subtle. The, the people of God became a prostitute, whoring after the gods of her neighbors, And then even after being repeatedly rescued and brought back into a right standing within the covenant, the seduction of the world overpowered her again. And although this grieved the Lord, it certainly did not surprise him. Because before the foundation of the world, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
make a pact. They made a pact to redeem a people out of the corrupt masses of humanity. The father would send his son into the corruption, and the son would live in the midst of the filth of this world without ever becoming filthy himself. He would live his entire life facing every kind of temptation that is common to man, and never once would he give in. And so he is the only human who never deserved to die, but he would willingly give his life as a ransom for many. He would lay down his life voluntarily as he agreed to before the foundation of the world. His perfect sacrifice satisfies divine justice, paying the penalty for our sin, for the sin of fallen humanity. And and after dying on the cross, he, he rose again from the dead. Three days later, he proves his victory over sin and death. And so when the church in heaven, sings praise for the judgment of immorality, it is with this gospel mission in mind. They were each individually saved from the clutches of Babylon. They were each individually called out of darkness and brought into the light of his covenant community. Not only that, but they were filled with the Holy Spirit who initially drew them to the Father and then continues to fill them with a reverent desire to please him. That's why we gather now. That's why we gather as the church. Our hearts are being transformed so that we desire Babylon less and less, and we crave Christ more and more. As believers, from the smallest to the greatest, we are being sanctified. We are enabled to grow in godliness so that our fear of the Lord increases and our fear of man decreases. And as we behold the glory of the Lord in worship, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, as Paul says to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And so we represent various stages of maturity, Right here in this community, we represent various stages of maturity, but every stage, regardless of where we are, reflects the grace of God shown to us through Jesus Christ. All of it redounds to his glory. We don't credit ourselves. We credit the one who does a work in us. And so after praising God for the judgment of Christ's enemy, the same great multitude shifts their focus to begin praising the salvation of Christ's bride. So we go from praising the judgment of Christ's enemy in the second section, verses 6 through 10, to praising the salvation of Christ's bride. And in in response then to the exhortation that came from the throne, the great multitude in verse 6 appears to to shout even louder, right? Uh, Like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, they cry out, Hallelujah. The title that they attribute to God proclaims his omnipotence. He is the Almighty. The Lord our God, the Almighty who reigns. He, it's his sovereign power that they declare. And so the greatness of their expression 
is in proportion to their longing for it on earth. Right? Christ's return marks the first time that his reign is uncontested. The verb reign, reigns is actually identical to begun to reign that we find in Revelation 11, verse 17. And so it marks this new phase of his reign as it descends from heaven to earth. And the harlot has been removed, and that fact allows the praise of the church to now be unhindered. Their worship is full because his kingdom has now become fully established on earth as it is in heaven. What we've been praying throughout this age has now become reality. And so they exhort one another to rejoice and exult and give him the glory because the wedding day has finally arrived for the lamb and his bride. The bride received fine linen, it says in verse 8, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And that fine linen is defined as the righteous deeds of the saints. And so this is an interestingly worded phrase. She was granted or given the ability to clothe herself. John could have easily said either that the bride clothed herself or that she was clothed by another. But John intentionally includes both ideas in the same phrase, in the same sentence. Right, she passively received the fine linen with which she would actively clothe herself. This is not vague or difficult to understand. Our theology is wholly consistent with this grammar. First, it conveys the idea that the saints receive a pure garment from the Lord to replace their own filthy rags. And then second, it conveys the idea that the Lord enables the bride to practice personal holiness. This involves mortification and vivification. Right? The, the putting to death and, the, and the, uh, or the putting off of your old self and the putting on of the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. If we are to enter into the wedding feast of the Lamb, we must be enabled to persevere in righteousness. And so the wedding garment is specifically called the righteous deed, deeds of the saints with which she made herself ready. Back in verse 7. So there's, there's just no denying this active participation in their own holiness. It, it, it's imagery that comes directly out of Isaiah 61 verse 10. And so Vern Poitras says, the saints are distinguished from the world by their righteous acts. At the same time, these acts are not the product of autonomous effort, self-effort, but planned and empowered by God. Right? That's the nuance that Scripture gives. We see this same combination of both active and passive verbs in relation to the white garments of the saints. Back in chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, Sardis was exhorted... Uh, uh, or some in Sardis were, were called out as, as not having their, their garments soiled. Right? They had not yet been soiled by the culture, by the idolatry of the world. 
because they continued to walk in white. And it even said, for they are worthy. It's consistent language with what we see here. The saints are said to have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. What cleansed the robes was the blood of the lamb. But it was the saints who were washing their robes in that blood. There's an active and a passive component there. And that, so we've seen this already in Revelation, and we continue to see it here in the culmination. The angel instructs John to write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, in verse 9. And so the vision shifts from the metaphor of the church as, as Christ's bride, which would be a corporate identity, to the church as guests invited to attend the marriage supper, which then has this individual component. In each individual within that corporate covenant community must personally receive that invitation and respond to it. And so there's a corporate and individual aspect of the communion of the saints that's being described here. And then it concludes in verse 10 with this interesting anecdote where John himself falls to worship the angel who's giving him this message. And he's rebuked by the angel. You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So the angel immediately rebukes John for this inappropriate direction of his worship. And so we want to, first of all, say his instincts are good and natural. What he is seeing is this incredible picture of the saints' unhindered praise of God. And so he wants to give praise as well. But his, direction, his worship is misguided. So the angel reminds him that he's a fellow servant and that all worship is to be directed to God. This is really the second time that we've seen John doing something like this, right? This inappropriate. The angel had to correct his marveling at the great prostitute back in chapter 17. We see here him bowing down. In fact, he'll do this again, this very same thing. He'll fall down at the feet of an angel worshiping after he's already been rebuked here. Um, and so we're reminded that John is still a flawed man. Although he is witnessing the majestic view of the saints in glory, he remains fallible. He has seen possibly the greatest picture of glory that any man has ever witnessed. And yet he is still tainted by his own indwelling sin. Right, even if a saint could reach the highest realms of human holiness, he would remain hindered by that indwelling sin. And so when we think about Hosea, right, Hosea illustrates for us God's redeeming grace in the midst of his bride's unfaithfulness. In chapter 3, he finds her being sold as a slave. She's at a slave auction based on the context. And it's the voice of Hosea. Right? It's the voice of, of God, Hosea representing God, who, who calls out above the rest of those in that facility it's his voice 
that rises above the rest to purchase her back. And it says he purchased her for 15 shekels of silver, the price of a slave, and a homer and a lethic of barley. So it seems that there were other bids coming in and he had to raise the price in order to buy her back. He redeems her and he calls her for himself and he exhorts her to remain faithful to him even as he promises to remain faithful to her. And knowing her history, it's really hard to imagine anything could possibly change in her behavior moving forward. Right, the repeated failures of an unfaithful people are met by the steadfast love of a faithful God. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. Only the sacrifice of the pure and spotless lamb could provide the saints with the security of their inheritance. Right, it's only through the death of Christ that the saints can receive the garment of righteousness and it's only by the enabling of the Holy Spirit that saints can keep their garment from being soiled by the world. But it's not until the return of the Lamb that immorality will be finally eradicated and where the bride is ushered into the eternal celebration of the marriage feast. And Jesus talks about this in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. He tells the parable and he says, the kingdom of God is like a is like a king who hosts a wedding feast for his son. He prepares a, a wonderful dinner, but those invited didn't attend. He sent out messengers to, to invite um, his guests, and the messengers themselves are mistreated. Some of them died. Right? The, those, the recipients of those invitations, they, they take it and they, they rip it up and they... And they they mistreat the, the ones who brought the message. And so in their place, the king told his servants to extend the invitation to everyone they find. Go out into the highways. Everywhere you go, invite everyone you see. And so as the wedding hall is filled up, there's one guest who enters without a wedding garment. And we don't know why. We don't know how he got there. Maybe he was simply following the crowd but he did not have the proper attire. Maybe he wasn't taking the invitation seriously. Maybe he was just doing what others did because they told him to. Whatever the reason, the result was devastating. The king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, in Revelation, those who do not attend the wedding supper of the Lamb will attend another feast that's described later on in chapter 19. And we'll look at it next week. But as a, an example, in verse 17, it says, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God. You think, okay, there's another supper. Here's a, here's a second, maybe a second blessing. No, this is a, a supper that involves the birds who have been called down to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And then in verse 21, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. 
So the marriage supper of the Lamb stands in stark contrast to this horrific and terrifying image of another feast that is taking place. Everyone will attend one feast or the other. And so if you have not received the garment of righteousness, then I encourage you to use this opportunity, even in our song of response, to look to look by faith to the church's one foundation, Jesus Christ, her Lord. Right? It's only by his death that we can receive the garment we need to enter into the everlasting celebration that he invites us to enjoy. And so don't delay in your response. Heavenly Father, we know your word is powerful. We know this imagery here is even uh, meant to convey deep emotions in the saints, those who have, who have been brought out of immorality and brought into the glories of the new heavens and the new earth, and so they can rejoice in you and give you praise unhindered. We recognize that we only get a taste of that now in this life. We are hindered because of our sin. We know that even our motives, our best motives, our purest motives are tainted, even as John reveals. And so, Lord, we need your help. We need you to to give us the desires that you call us to have. And command what you will and then grant in us the ability to respond to that command. And for those who have not submitted themselves to Jesus Christ as their Lord, may they do so even as we sing this song of response. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.